Well, hi, everybody. Nice to see you tonight. You know, I was talking with Kirk, um, I don't know when it was, in the midst of the uh, crisis with Luke, about a message that I wrote a couple of years ago, and without really knowing that it would become such, it, it sort of became one of my signature messages. And as I was talking with Kirk, I pulled it out on my iPad and looked at it, and what do you know, I've never preached it at Pine Rivers Vineyard. <laughs> I guess that's a function of you know, where I've been and what I've been doing, and I, I come here every year, but every year we have a particular theme that we go after, and it just didn't seem to fit, but as I was talking with Kirk, I said, you know, maybe I should do this message because I have not done it here. Um, not so much as a recycle, because one of the things I've figured out is the way I write my sermons, I don't, I don't write them out word for word. Sometimes there are specific phrasings I want, and I will write those down. But a lot, of, a lot of people do write their sermons word for word, and they either read them or they memorize them. Jonathan Edwards, the famous revivalist, uh, lest you think there's anything wrong with writing a message, he was very nearsighted, and he literally, no kidding, of course, he didn't have an iPad, he had a notes. An iPad, you can zoom it out so that even if you uh, have difficulty seeing, you can uh, make it as big as you need to. But they couldn't do that in the uh, 1700s. So he would literally read his sermons like this while he was preaching. And the power of God would fall and people would get saved. And so, you know, God works with our limitations. But anyway, I don't, uh, I don't generally write my sermons out. I, I write the points I want to make, and then around that skeleton, the, the muscles and the sinews and so forth form. So no sermon is ever exactly the same twice when I preach it, except for maybe those unique phrasings that I know I really want to capture them that way, and I've written that phrasing into my notes. So I'm not sure how this message will come out tonight. I know how it's come out the other times I've preached it in other lands and other churches and so forth, but open your Bibles with me to the fourth chapter of John. It's a famous passage um, for all kinds of reasons, and we're going to visit this story tonight together. John chapter 4, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was Sitting beside the well, it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing with which to draw water, 
and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And he said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not keep saying there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And after two days, he departed for Galilee. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Well, this is a famous passage. Most of us, if we've been in the church any length of time, we've heard at least one or two or 20 or 30 sermons on this passage. But I want to try and take you back. I want to go back 2,000 years in time. I want to go 
to the Holy Land. I want to go to Sychar. And I want you to imagine for just a moment as we put ourselves back into this story. At the same time, I want you to keep yourself here in the 21st century in Pine Rivers. And I want you to imagine as you're juxtaposing between these two locations and places, I want you to imagine for a moment that you get an opportunity to spend a week with Jesus. Now at the moment when I say you get to spend a week with Jesus, I don't want you to think about Palestine 2,000 years ago. I mean right now, November 2016, starting tonight, the 16th, or the 6th of November. I want you to imagine that you get the opportunity to spend a week with Jesus. How long do you think it's going to be before you see something happen? Is it going to be the whole week? Maybe it's going to be a couple of days. Maybe it's going to be a few hours before somebody receives a prophetic word, gets healed, is introduced to eternal life, gets delivered of an evil spirit, has a miracle worked around them that changes the entire way their world was 75 days ago. How long do you think it's going to be? I think unless Jesus was somehow on a, what, a prayer retreat, maybe trying to escape the crowds as he would sometimes do, I don't think you'd go very long before you saw him engage in something that we would collectively call kingdom activity. It was, it was normal for him to have the kingdom breaking out around him. It was not something that happened once and then nine years later something else might happen. You know, I remember when I was a boy talking to my grandmother and she told me a few stories of things God had done in her life and in the life of her family, meaning her sisters and brothers, and of her children who were my aunts and uncles. One of them was my mother. Uh, but in their lives, and the way my grandmother told these stories, it was more like once upon a time this happened once. And I think sometimes we settle into kind of a complacency about that. We, we settle into that. We view that as, well, you know, God did it once. I got born again. I got filled with the Spirit. My boy got healed of meningitis, but that's kind of it. And we're, we're supposed to hold on to that for a lifetime. I don't think so. I think that's to set our expectations too low. How long do you think you would hang around Jesus in that week before something happened? How many times do you think you would see something happen? I would submit to you, it's a lot more than once. About three years ago, I was at a meeting in California, and um, I was introduced to Todd White. How many of you know who Todd White is? All right. So Todd and I get introduced, and we hit it off right away, and we're having a great time talking. We decide we're going to have breakfast, and we're sitting in the restaurant at the hotel where we'd been introduced, and we're having breakfast, and of course... He's a famous evangelist, and I don't really call myself an evangelist, but whatever I am, I'm in the God business like he is. And so we're, we're having our God talk. And we're at this little table, and we're face-to-face, -face, and we're pretty intent on our God talk. You know, after all, this is the business we're in. And so we're all about God. You know, we're, we're talking God. It's all, it's all that religious God stuff that we're doing. And while we're eating... The busboy is working the table and doing what busboys do. He's clearing dirty dishes and he's offering more water and more coffee. He's asking if there's anything else we'd like. Would we like him to have the waitress come over again? And Todd and I were very intent, you see. We're busy talking about God. 
And there's something about this busboy as he's coming, and for me, he was on my left. For Todd, he was on his right. But anyway, he's coming, and it was just at the point of being annoying. You ever had that one? Of course, we were godly Christian men seeking to serve the Lord Jesus. What we really wanted to do was flick him away, but of course that would not be charitable, so we didn't do that. And all of a sudden, in the midst of it, we kind of looked at each other, and we both realized, ah, this is a God moment. God's doing something. And we almost missed the God moment with all of our God talk. Just let that one set for a moment. And we both realized, hey, we better grab the God moment. Todd was a fraction of a second quicker than I was. And he reaches around to this busboy's back and he touches him down here in the lower back and he says, Dolor. Dolor is the Spanish word for, span, uh, for pain. He didn't even say, be able to, he didn't have the Spanish ability to say, Tiene dolor. He just said, Dolor. And the busboy looks at him and he says, Si. Todd looks at me and he goes, Do you speak Spanish? I said, some? He goes, good, because that's all the Spanish I know. What was he doing, though? Ready, fire, aim. Take the shot. Because in the moment, it comes and it goes. And if you miss it, you don't know when the next one will come. There might be another one. But it might not come for a while. It might be at a different moment, in a different context, a different setting. So we engage with this busboy and Todd's kind of jabbering away to him and I'm talking to him in the Spanish that I know. What I know is good, but I'm not all the way fluent anymore. So I'm translating and I'm adding my own to this and it might have been two minutes, maybe it was three, but we prayed for this busboy, his back was healed and he gave his life to Christ. How long do you have to hang around Jesus before something happens? I mean really. How long do you have to hang around Jesus before something happens? Well, not long after that, the busboy said in Spanish, and I translated it back to Todd, I better get back to work. I see my boss standing over there, and I've been with you long enough now that he's going to wonder why I've been here so long. Off he goes. Presently, a man in a suit and a tie comes meandering over to our table, and he says... I noticed that the busboy spent some extra time with you. Is everything okay? Well, Todd and I are now on our game. And he didn't realize it, but he was walking into interlocking zones of fire. <laughs> so he said, well, you know, we were just talking to him about God. We were praying for him that his back would be healed and introducing him to the Lord Jesus. And what about you, sir? Where do you stand with the Lord? And you know what he did? He said, oh, hold on, my brother-in-law is into that stuff. I don't want any of that. No way. Uh-uh. Woo! And off he went. Not every single engagement will result in an instantaneous conversion. But once again, we'd taken a shot. In the game of evangelism, something that we've talked about, danced around, and brought to the fore again this weekend, over and over again, Evangelism tends to be something where, in the moment, something happens. When I was here about three years ago or four years ago, 
And I talked about the silver pillar that I sometimes see when I know someone's going to get saved. You know, when these things happen, these, these anointings in the moment, they tend to be quick and fleeting, and that means you've got to be like a sniper. You know, when a sniper is trained, they're up on a ridge or they're in a building or something, and a lot of times they're shooting at moving targets, not stationary. And so a vehicle's going down a road and there's a window, and as it goes through, they just have that moment, <laughs> take the shot. Because if you miss the moment, you might not get another shot. Now, I don't want to turn this into some striving-oriented thing where people go, oh my God, i gotta, I got to do it right there! <laughs> and then it turns into this whole bondage thing. And we've all, we've all been through those church services. We've all been harangued about how you need to evangelize. I, I don't want to do that. But I do want to bring to your attention this business of cooperating with the Spirit is a moment-by-moment -moment thing. And sometimes those moments of divine opening... They're like windows. They open and they close. Anybody remember the one Star Wars movie where the Sith Lord Darth Maul is going to come against Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi, the young Obi-Wan. And there are those, that's an energy field that, that drops and they can't get to each other. And then all of a sudden the energy field opens and it's on. There's those openings and closings. Some call them portals. Some call them shifting atmospheres. I don't care what you call them, but you have to learn to recognize them that when God is moving, you want to take the shot. Does that make sense to everybody? I'll give you another story. I was on a flight that same summer. I was flying home from Boston, Massachusetts, to my hometown of Los Angeles. And I had been upgraded. I get on the airliner and I'm in row three in the first class cabin. And so I'm settling into my seat. And normally when I'm on an airplane, I'm not all that interested in evangelism. That's just me. I mean, I, I know we've been talking about evangelism, but, you know, I'm often with people. I often have people pulling at me. People want questions. They want prayer. They want, you know, I got to have some downtime. And oftentimes airliners are my time for doing that. And I had this nice first class seat. So I'm settling in and shields up, right? I'm in the bubble. I'm going into the zone. And this woman walks up and she's about to sit down in the aisle seat next to me. And as I look at her, I see in my mind's eye two young men. And they're dressed in battle fatigues as it happens. No relationship to the language about taking shots as snipers. But they're dressed in battle fatigues. And as I'm looking at her, I'm seeing them. And one of them, I notice, has a red line that goes from just about here on his right femur, right hip, all the way down to his knee. And just in case I missed it, there's arrows pointing like this. And I'm going, oh no, I don't want to do this. But she sits down in the seat and we start talking. And it turns out she's the head of human resources for a major high technology company in Boston on, on what is called Route 128. It's the Silicon Valley of the East Coast. And it's grown up because of places like Harvard and MIT that are in the Boston area. But she lived in Los Angeles, and this was, you know, the economic depression had hit the United States, and jobs were very scarce. So if you could find one, even executives were doing FIFO, not just minors. And so she had taken this job in Boston, and she was commuting between LA and Boston. It's about a six hour plane ride, it's a pretty serious distance. 
3,300 miles, call it, what, 5,000 kilometers apart. And this was her daily, or sorry, not daily, weekly commute. So she's getting ready to uh, go back to California, and I'm looking at this thing, and I see these young men, and I find out that she is this head of human resources in this major technology company, and let's just say she's not this woman at the well. This is a tough, savvy woman who's not going to take any off of anybody. She's smart. She knows how she's nimble on her feet. You don't get to be in a job like that reporting to the CEO of a major technology company with thousands of employees unless you're a pretty savvy person yourself. And so we start talking and I said, well, you know, that's got to be kind of a tough gig, you know, doing this transcontinental commute every week and you know, working in Boston, and she goes, yeah, well, you know, you do what you got to do, which is a that's, a, that's right, but it's also somewhat of a deflecting remark, and shields her up. And I said, well, you know, how do you handle that? And she goes, well, wh why do you ask? I said, well, I'm, I commute a bit myself. I know what it's like to be away from home a fair amount. And she says, yeah, you know, I, I guess I've settled into it. It's, I, I figure this is the way it is for now. And I said, how does this affect your, your kids, your sons? She kind of looks at me a little bit askance. Why would you ask about my sons? It's kind, of, it's kind of pointed, but see, I'd seen these two young men. And I'm thinking, how do I use this word? What do I do with this piece of information God has given me? And so we talked a little bit more, and, and I said, uh, your sons, are, are they younger or older? They're, they're older, aren't they? And she goes, why would you ask that? And I said, I don't know, you just, I'm looking at you and I'm thinking you're probably in the time of life where your sons might have, you know, grown up a bit. And, uh, and I said, they wouldn't be in the military, would they? Well, how would you know that? I said, well, I don't know, you, and I, now I, I, you know, I went to MSU, make stuff up. So I said to her, well, I don't know, the way you carry yourself, you kind of strike me like a military mom. <laughs> Wing it and sling it, right? Just go. I'm just trying to figure out how am I going to engage with this thing. It's pretty clear to me God wants something to happen, but I can't quite find the, the, the zone. I'm looking for the window. I'm looking for the shot, but I don't see it yet. Sometimes evangelism's like that, too. So... She says, yeah, yeah, I, I do have two sons. She said, they're both in the military. And I said, you've been worried about one of them, haven't you? I said, he's had some health problems. How do you know that? And all of a sudden, she hits the call button. The flight attendant comes over. She goes, who is this guy? Why is he asking me all these questions? How does he know these things about me? And I'm thinking, oh, great. I'm going to end up proned out on the floor with some air marshal's Glock in the back of my head. But somehow we got through it, and the plane pushed off the gate, and we take off. And now that we're in the air, and I figured they're not going to land the plane to take me off the plane, so I just decided to just kind of let it go. And I said, you're really worried about your one son because he's had health problems. There's a problem in his right femur. I said, he's had cancer, hasn't he? I said, it's in the bone marrow. And she just looks at me, and she goes, who are you? How do you know these things? I said, well, there's a God in heaven and he's been watching over you. And I said, he knows about your son and he knows about you. And it began.
And we talked about God from Boston to Las Vegas, which is about an hour out from L.A., and then she didn't want to talk anymore, and so we ended the conversation. But all of this began before we'd even pushed off the gate in Boston, and so I return to the question I've already put in front of you. How long do you have to hang around Jesus before something happens? See, for most of us, we've settled into this place of complacency and ease or of having our own shields up. We're in the zone where we want to be out. I did. I didn't want to be having that conversation on that airliner. I had other things to do, like take a nap, write a sermon, read a book, listen to a sermon from a friend, anything but not that. I didn't want to do it then. It wasn't convenient. Sometimes the kingdom is not convenient. But on the other hand, because I saw the moment and I didn't back away from it, I ended up in this lengthy conversation with her. Now, I've read a lot of books about evangelism in my lifetime. Nearly all of them deal with personal evangelism, and that's for a very good reason. Most of us, and I would include in that pretty much probably every person in this room, absent something unexpected, most of us will not be crusade evangelists. We won't be the Reinhard Bonnke. We won't be the Daniel Kalenda. I'm not sure if Todd White is moving into that or not. He looks like he could, but he hasn't. So I'll put him on the list, though. Todd White, Luis Palau, Ed Silvoso. But, you know, you kind of run out of people fairly quickly. I don't know how many of those big-name crusade evangelists we really need on the planet. Probably a hundred of them could handle most of the big crusades that, that need to be conducted globally in a given year because if they're all busy kind of 50 weeks a year and you had a hundred of them, that'd be 5,000 big crusades a year. I mean, I'm talking like filling soccer stadiums and football stadiums and things like that. But now personal evangelism, that's something quite different. And that's why most books are on personal evangelism. And that is, in fact, exactly what we see here in John 4. We get a detailed 43-verse discussion of how Jesus conducted evangelism right here. It is the deepest dive, the best picture of it that we have in the entire Bible. There are a couple of others, but this one is by far the best. And most of the books I've read on evangelism, and that is personal evangelism, not crusade evangelism, they point to this passage as some kind of a prototype. And most of the exegesis, most of the exposition on this passage that I've read, it's not that it's bad, it's good. Um, it's not that it's grammatically wrong or historically wrong. It's that it's unsatisfying. I walk away from it feeling like, yeah, you gave me a lot of technical points, but I don't understand the why, as I said this morning. I, I, I've somehow missed the heart of the matter. And so people tend to pull these cutesy little trips, tick, tips and tricks out of the passage. But the heart of what's going on somehow goes right on by. Now, the man who wrote this book, John, the Gospel of John. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, also wrote a letter called the first letter of John. And as it happens, coincidentally, maybe it's prophetic, but probably not, in chapter 4 of his letter, he says this, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Now he's writing that to Christians. He's not writing it to non-believers. We often think that non-believers worry about how they're going to have confidence on the day of judgment. 
Some do, more don't. They don't even think about the day of judgment, most of them. But John is writing to Christians and he says, Christian, this is how you know you're going to have confidence on the day of judgment. Now what he's saying is that you might actually come to the day of judgment and not have confidence. You might not have the expectation of well done, good and faithful servant. You might actually come and have the Lord say, what did you do with all those years I gave you? How did you spend your days? And how did you spend your time? But John says, here's how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. What he's saying is that you will have confidence on the day of judgment if your love is complete. And that means that it's possible for your love not to be complete. That means it's possible to fill up the measure of love. Paul talks about filling up the measuring of the sufferings of Christ in our own lives. This is how we do it. Ready? Here it comes. In this world, we are to be like Jesus. And that, by the way, is why you would want to spend a week with Jesus, so that you could get His heartbeat so that you could understand how He lived this way. We are to be like Jesus. What you see right here in John 4, this is the normal Christian life. It's not just the Jesus life. It's the one that you were created to live. Now you might go, I don't live that life. Okay, all that is, we called it in strategic planning, gap analysis. Here's the goal, here's where you are. Mind the gap. But it's a staggering thought. Our love is perfected by living as He lived. We become more loving when we live more like He did. When our actions match His actions, and I should say with it, our attitudes match His attitudes. So most Christians, and I don't care if they're vineyardites, I don't care if they're charismatics or Pentecostals, I don't care if they're conservative Bible thumpers that don't believe in the Holy Spirit, I don't care if they're liberals who don't even believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Most Christians agree on one single thing for sure, everywhere, all the time, and that is we are called to love. But very few stop to consider what does that look like. And very few stop to consider that we can increase our love by living and doing as He did. Real love, biblical love, the love we're talking about right now, it implies action and it implies engagement with the world around us. Action and engagement. And yet for most of us, we have been trained unconsciously over a period of months and then years and then decades not to engage. We have been taught to disengage by our culture, by our mores, by something that we talked about on the weekend that I call the middle class lifestyle, all that and more. And this encounter that Jesus had with this woman, interestingly enough, it occurred in the midst of everyday life. It was the normal routine of life. There was absolutely nothing special or magical about it until it became special and magical. Because in moments of revelation, in moments of power, in moments of visitation, it's like suddenly the window opens and there is the shot. And you better take it when it happens because in a moment the window will close. Now, it might open again or it might not. You know, one of the common mistakes that we all believe is that anybody can get saved anytime. That's actually not right. The Scripture says that there is an appointed time unto salvation. There are these kairos moments, moments of grace. And while somebody might turn away from the Lord, the Lord might in His goodness give them another chance. But you can't say that it will be five minutes later. It might be five days or five weeks or five years. 
And so we want to partner with the Lord. We want to become part of that divine dance. My father is always at work and I too am working, but that means when my father opens the window for this person, I want to be ready to move on that. That's what we see going on right here in John 4. And so here's how it unfolds. Now, in my mind's eye, I envision it sort of this way. Jesus is northbound. He's headed home to Galilee. He's going back to his adopted town of Capernaum. He'd moved away from Nazareth and he's living by the Sea of Galilee. He had good taste. He liked to live by the beach. And he's living in Capernaum, but he's been down in the south of the country. He's been ministering in Judea. And it says he's northbound. And I don't know if you caught it, but in verse 4 it says, and he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Sychar. Why? Because the main highway went right through there. It's like the M1. You don't really get to choose whether you're going to go through certain towns. That's just where the road goes. And so he comes to Sychar. It's Samaritan country. Not really where any good Jew would want to be, but it happens that it says it's the sixth hour. That means it's high noon. The sun's overhead. It's hot. You guys get that? Think about how it was today. And so they come into Sychar and they walk into town and the disciples, they go away to buy food. And Jesus is sitting by the well. Now I'm pretty sure that the town fathers of Sychar had not built this beautiful park with a bench and a drinking fountain. But I'm envisioning that he's sitting with his back against Jacob's well. You could see it differently if you want to, but I'm taking you now back 20 centuries. This is Roman-occupied territory. Everything's being taxed to the limit. There's no extra money for public works. Jesus is sitting by the well. He's been walking since dawn. His feet are tired. He's hot sweaty and dusty. I see him with his back against the well and he's kind of got his eyes closed. Maybe he was wearing a hat. Artists don't paint Jesus with a hat, but if you live in the Middle East, if you travel in country like that, you normally have a hat on. It keeps the sun off your head. It keeps you cool. So I see him with his hat maybe pulled down a little bit over his face. Maybe like a gunfighter from a Western. And he's by the well. And I don't know if he's praying or snoozing. But all of a sudden as he's there, you hear just the faintest... <laughs> the bucket that the woman has brought to the well has been lowered into the well. And now you hear the... <laughs> She's cranking the well, and up on the rope comes the bucket with water spilling out over the sides. And up it comes, and Jesus opens his eyes and he looks around. And he sees this woman. This is just everyday life unfolding. He says, give me a drink. And so it begins. Give me a drink. He has a conversation with a woman that, well, he shouldn't have been having a conversation with. This woman responds to him in a very interesting way. 
He says, give me a drink. And she says, who are you? You can hear her jagged disillusionment at 2,000 years distance. <laughs> Who are you? Jew. Talking to me, a woman of Samaria. Jews don't talk to Samaritans. Jewish men don't talk to Samaritan women unless they've got something else on their mind. Jesus is not phased by her jaded anger the jagged edges of her disillusionment. And he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was talking to you, the one who's asking you for a drink, you would have turned the question back to me and said, give me living water. That's what you should be doing, lady. Now this woman's no fool. She says, I caught you napping by the well. You don't even have a bucket. What are you talking about giving me living water? By the way, you think you're greater than our father Jacob? My family's been living on this mountain for centuries. You, I don't know who you are, but you aren't from around these parts. Because this is small town Palestine. Everybody's related to everybody and everybody knows everybody. I've never seen you before. Who are you anyway? You ever had a conversation like that? Maybe down at the Strathpine Mall. Maybe at the coffee club. Sure you have. Our father dug this well. He drank from it himself. His sons drank from it. His livestock drank from it. Jesus taps the side of the well, still sitting there, and he says, you know, everybody who drinks this water, they're going to get thirsty again, but anybody who drinks the water that I offer, they'll never be thirsty again. He says, the water that I give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this woman, I'm thinking, taking a little bit of preacher liberty here, she goes, well then, sir... Give me this water, because I hate drawing water. This job sucks. I don't ever want to draw water again. It's hard on my shoulders. It's hard on my back. I've got to get up early. I get harassed when I come down here. Give me that water. And Jesus says, call your husband. Now what he's really doing, of course, is he's setting her up. And so she says, well, I don't have a husband. And of course, as the text says... He says, you're right, you don't have a husband, but you have had five husbands. Now, most of the commentators that write on this passage, they will tell you that this woman was like the village prostitute. And so, you know, she just shagged anything that moved and was, you know, shacked up now. But in reality, Jesus says you've had five husbands, and I don't think he means common-law husbands. This is a woman, you can see why she's jagged and disillusioned. Maybe one husband was abducted by the Romans and put into service in the army and was killed in battle. She marries again. Maybe he runs off with a younger woman. She marries again. Maybe the next one dies of disease. She marries again. Maybe the next one has a business failure and commits suicide. But however it comes about, and we don't know because it doesn't tell us, I'm just trying to put you back 20 centuries. I'm trying to help you be in the moment. 
But what you do know is if this woman's had five husbands, all she's known in her life is a lot of heartbreak and sorrow and sadness. And so he says, yeah, you're right in saying that you have no husband. You've had five husbands and basically you've given up on marriage, haven't you, ma'am? You don't believe in marriage anymore. Does that sound like 90% of Australia to you? Hello? What you said is true. And the woman says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> Duh. Deep spiritual discernment. But you know, what's happening here is Jesus is landing shots, maybe not quite on the target, but he's taking a shot. And that bullet went dust splash. And she's like, whoa, this is getting just a little bit too close. I think I'll change the topic. You know, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Let's have a big talk about religion. How it doesn't work. How it's broken. Let's just totally deflect this thing. That's what she's trying to do. And Jesus just... He's about to take another shot. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. Where this mountain isn't going to matter, Jerusalem's not going to matter. God wants people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. He says it twice. So lady, don't talk to me about mountains. Stop talking to me about religion. Where are you with this? That's a very important question that you need to learn to ask if you're going to be evangelistic, somewhere in there, where are you with all of this? Because all this deflection, it'll happen every time. Or nearly every time. The hour is coming. <laughs> in fact, it's now here. Game on, lady. Right now. Showtime. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, the Father is seeking people to worship Him that way, ma'am, are you ready to lay it down? Are you ready to worship Him in spirit and truth right now? That's what He's doing here. Now this woman is really like, the next shot is like, it cuts hair. A little lock of her long hair falls to the ground. This is getting a little too close. She goes, ah, you know, we've been hearing about this guy called Messiah. You know, the, the ruling king and the line of David, that whole thing. He'll come back one day. He'll sort all this out. The Greeks call him Christ. The Jews call him Messiah. We call him Christ here in Samaria because we're Greek speakers up here. When he comes, he'll tell us everything. Wrong guy to say that to. Wrong guy. Because he says what? <laughs> I'm him. Hi. What are you going to do with it, lady? And just as all this is unfolding, just as Jesus is about to close the deal, the disciples come back. And they look, and they see that He's talking with this woman. Now they know this is a no-fly zone. Men don't talk to women in this society. Jews don't talk to Samaritans. And, but they didn't say anything. They didn't say, Master, why are you talking to this white trash? But they also don't say to her, Hey, slut, why are you talking to the rabbi? Now I'm using kind of street talk, but I'm trying to put you into what this really looks and feels like. 
I want you to smell the dust in the air. Oh, and they have lunch. Now, in the Middle East, it's pretty much not changed in 20 centuries. Lunch looks like a pita, pita bread. And they put some meat on it with some stuff. Chopped onions, radishes, whatever. So they've come back with lunch. Meanwhile, the woman gets up and leaves. She leaves her water jar right there. She goes away into the town. And as she goes into town, she goes, come see the man who's told me all that I ever did. Now, he didn't actually tell her everything she ever did, but he told her everything that mattered. In other words, Jesus had the ability to sort through the fluff and go right into what was really the, the issue. So while she's away, the disciples are saying to him, Rabbi, eat! Rabbi, eat! He's a really good falafel we got here in Sychar. And they're tucking in. That's how you eat this stuff, right? And so they're, they're standing around the well and they're, they're eating their brown bag lunch that they've gotten from the, from the town. And they notice Jesus is not eating. And so they say, Rabbi, eat! He says, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. Something greater fuels me. Something, something more powerful sustains me. It's kind of like what Paul had going on when we talked about him this morning. And so they say to each other, did somebody come back to him and bring him food before we got back? Why, why, would, he, why would he not be eating and... I, in my mind's eye, I envision him walking over to Peter and kind of going upside the head. Hey, you! My food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. Paul, in one of his letters, talks about those whose God is their belly. They live for their appetites. And what he's saying to them is, men, I know you need to eat, but you're living for your appetites, not for the will of your Father. You've got other priorities that are in play. You know, when you went into Sychar, by the way, how did you guys do ministering to the people of Sychar? Did you heal the man at the falafel stand or give him a prophetic word? That little crippled boy down on the corner, did you pray for him? What were you doing in Sychar other than just buying your lunch? Now they're, and in so many words, what he's saying is, guys, pull your head out of your food. Because you're all down here. And he says to them, you guys keep saying, four months and then comes the harvest. But the harvest didn't come. So you kick the can down the road. You say, well, we'll just go a little longer. Four months and the harvest will come. You kick the can down the road. Pretty soon a year's gone by. Then 16 months. Then 18. Pretty soon it's 24 months. You just keep kicking the tan down the road. Four months and then comes the harvest. Four months and then comes the harvest. And then he walks over and he goes, You, Thaddeus, get your head out of your food. Look, lift up your eyes. Here they come. The fields are white for harvest. The whole town of Sychar is coming right at us. Put your food down. It's showtime right now. The kingdom of God is often not convenient. 
And how long do you think you have to hang around Jesus before something happens? We're about to have a revival. We're about to have a whole town get converted. That's what we're about to do. Are you guys on board? Are you ready? Now, I said when they came back that they saw Jesus talking to the woman. And they didn't say to him, Rabbi, what are you doing talking to the local slut? And when they saw her, they didn't say, Slut, what are you doing talking to the rabbi? And do you know why they didn't do that? I'll tell you why they didn't do that. Because this was absolutely, positively, for certain, not the first time they had seen this behavior. They'd seen it again and again. When Jesus had called Peter and Andrew and James and John, those were His first four disciples, when He'd called them, He made them a deal. Jesus doesn't break His word. When He called them, He said, If you follow Me, I will make you fishers of men. You know what he was doing with them? He was speaking their language. They were all fishermen. Just like with this woman, she was drawing water. So he talked about water. He was speaking her language. How many of us could share the gospel in the language of a gas station attendant? Jesus is the fuel in your tank. I don't know. Whatever. That's probably corny, but go with it. How many of you could walk into a bank and talk about the kingdom of God in the language of banking and cash? How many of us could do these things? You know why we can't? Because our evangelistic skills have gone soft. We've allowed them to erode. And we keep saying, four months and then comes the harvest. Four more months and then comes the harvest. So Jesus had called Peter and Andrew and James and John, and what He did when He called them was He said, if you will follow Me, I will teach you to catch men. That's my guarantee. That is my promise. And you, and you, and you. You will catch men. Are you ready to catch men? Or women? Maybe you are looking to catch a man. I don't know. (laughs) Not long after he called them, he summoned a man named Levi. Levi worked for the Roman government. He was a turncoat to his own people. He was a tax collector, and he was sitting in a tax booth in Capernaum, And when he called Levi, he left his tax booth and followed him. Matthew 9 records this. He was apostle number 5. He had all 12 of them here. So this event is occurring after the calling of these first five. Four of them had been promised, you will learn to catch men. But they weren't doing it yet. They're just hanging around him, seeing him do it. And when he calls Levi... Levi changes his name and becomes Matthew. He wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He became the Apostle of Persia. And when Levi was converted, he threw a party. Some have called it Matthew's party. And you know who he invited? He invited his friends. Kirk, you said to me the other night, when I met Jesus, all I wanted to do was tell people about it. I was so excited. That's what Matthew did. He threw a party. I want to introduce you guys to this man who I've been watching him and he's been watching me and and he called my name and he called me and I have a chance now. Come meet him. And so he throws a party and who's at the party? Other tax collectors, a bunch of drunks, sinners, prostitutes, loose living people. All the religious leaders are like... (laughs) He's hanging out with them. You know what I think Jesus did? I think He walked into the room and He walked up and He said... You, 
Your son was just sick this weekend, but the hand of the Lord came and healed him because your father is visiting your house. Oh, and you, you've had this sickness. Here, let me pray for you right now. Oh, and you, with that demon that's been bothering you, let me, just come over here in the corner. We can sort this out right now. Jesus is working the room. He didn't go to the party and just, you know, nibble on carrots and dip the celery in the dip. He was engaged, and all of these guys, all five of them at that point, Peter and Andrew, James, John, and Levi, now Matthew, all five of them are watching him, and they're going, who is this guy? How long do you have to hang around Jesus before something happens? He said, my father is always at work, and I too am working, and when he showed up at Matthew's party, he's like, this is like shooting fish in a barrel. I couldn't have asked for more. I am so excited to be here. That's what happened in Matthew chapter 9. Go read it. So now the Samaritans are coming to him from the town. They've heard what the woman has said, but they believe because of her testimony. They know her. But once they see him for themselves... They say, oh, stay with us longer. Now what's noteworthy in this story in the midst of all this, sure there's supernatural things going on, absolutely. But as I've already said, the supernatural is the normal. And it's strategic. It's not just parlor games. And so, what's interesting is Jesus didn't just make a claim, he backed it up. He substantiated it. Any crackpot can claim to be the Messiah, but when he calls out her life, suddenly the whole thing opens up and it becomes very different. Not unlike my woman on the jetliner. Not unlike Todd White and me in the restaurant in California. And what caught the woman on the jetliner off guard what caught the man in the restaurant, the busboy, off guard? What caught this woman in the well or at the well in Sychar off guard was that each encounter, whether it's 21st century or 1st century, pretty much the same. What caught people off guard was the unexpected, that we didn't have the usual agenda on our minds. We had a kingdom agenda. We had a higher agenda. And so when she goes into town, she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Jesus was willing to violate the normal social conventions, the boundaries of his day, and I might dare say the learned behaviors that every society has, those norms. And as I said earlier, and as I said this morning, most of the time our problem isn't theological, it's sociological. We've become bounded and constrained by things that we've been told we should do. What's acceptable? You know, to become middle class, you have to become pretty good at certain things. That's part of it. It's a skill set. And it's not just the technical skills you use on the job. It's the social skills that say, I'm not going to talk about politics. I'm not going to talk about religion. I'm not going to talk about gay marriage. I'm not going to talk about immigration. I'm not going to talk about all these things because, well, that might offend people. And pretty soon we've excluded everything and suddenly there's nothing. And we develop those social competencies and I understand very clearly, because I had a successful career for a number of decades, 
when you're living in that world, there are certain things that you must do to conform to your world, but that doesn't mean you can't change it by, say, inviting this one to go to lunch, that one to come to breakfast. You can take it offline out of the office and then you can open up the conversation that you can't have when you're in the school because they'll fire you if you do it in the school. So change the nature of the debate if you have to. That's what Jesus did. And when you understand that, you're back to the same question, how long do you have to hang around Jesus before something happens? So, as I've already said, they had seen this before. And as, I, as this crowd is coming out to the well, I see him saying, John, you're a prophet, go give some prophetic words to those people. Peter, you're going to have a powerful healing ministry. You'll be particularly good at cripples. See all those kids over there that have cripple problems? Go pray for those kids in the crowd. Thaddeus, no one knows who Thaddeus is, but he's one of the twelve. He's got you beat. Thaddeus, go drive some demons out of those people. He's giving them sectors. You take that piece of the crowd, you take that piece of the crowd. I'll be with you, I'll work with you, but let's have a revival here. And the entire town comes to Christ, and in the end they beg Him to stay for two extra days. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a two-day delay. You don't really get snow. It's this funny white stuff, it's kind of cold, falls out of the sky. You don't get much of it here in Australia, maybe down in the mountains of, of, of Victoria, but, but not up here. But you know, in the United States in the winter, we get this stuff called snow, and sometimes a real big blizzard will come in, and they will literally shut an airport. And when you're in the airport and the snow is coming in, they will make the announcement, you know, all further flights are being canceled. And the first thing that happens is every bit of food in that airport vanishes. Right? Everybody runs to the restaurants and eats. They buy up everything, including the sour worms in the gift shops. If there are any hotels within walking distance, because you're not going to get a cab... Those all book up so people can walk to the hotel, maybe through the drifting snow, but they're going to bunker down. They're going to ride this thing out. But there's another thing that happens. There's a smell that comes into the air. It's the smell of fear mingled with anger because nobody likes to be delayed. And Jesus is running the Jesus Christ, first international apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic gospel crusade. And he's northbound from Jerusalem to Galilee. He's got places to go, people to meet, things to do. And suddenly, a spanner gets thrown in the works. That finely tuned life that you had, that soccer game you had to go to, that shopping trip you had to make, the laundry you had to do, the whole thing just falls over. Two days, he's with these Samaritans. But He's discipling them. He's teaching them more deeply. They've come to faith and He's investing in their lives. And He converts an entire village. How long do you have to hang around Jesus to see a revival that shakes a city? Not very long if you're willing to be inconvenienced and upend your lifestyle and have it stop looking like normal middle class living. And so they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said we believe. We've heard for ourselves. Our kids have been healed. 
We've had prophetic words over our lives. Our demons have been driven out. All of this has been going on. We know for sure this is the Savior of the world. And after two days of that, he departed for Galilee. About a year after I had my breakfast with Todd White, I was home one day. I was getting ready to come here to Australia. And I have a kind of a rule that I've... I learned it over time. I didn't start this way. But if I'm 48 hours from flight time, I don't meet anybody. I don't go anywhere. I am not available to anybody for any reason. I don't care if the president calls. I'm not available. And the reason for that is because I've learned I need time to finish packing. Might be nice to spend time with my wife. Last bills need to be paid. I'm working on messages. It's just, and I've learned everybody always thinks they've got to get a hold of me before I leave the country. And so the calls start coming in. And it's just, it's always hard. That's just my life. Yours might look different. But anyway, I'm within the 48 hour window, and my friend calls me. He's a missionary in Kuwait. He works with Muslims, as you would expect. Typical week, he leads three to five Muslims to the Lord a week. How you doing out there? Because he lives this life that I'm talking about. He calls me. I see him come up on my phone. I answer the phone. How you doing? He goes, hey, you answered your U.S. phone. That means you must be in the U.S. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. I said, you must be home from Kuwait. Yeah. He goes, hey, I'm in Southern California today. Where are you? Because, you know, I could be anywhere. I'm in Southern California. You want to have lunch? And I'm thinking, we're inside the window. I said, mm, yes. Well, he lived in one part of Los Angeles. I lived in another. L.A.'s a big city. And what I, what I had just done was I'd given away half a day. An hour to get there, maybe 75 minutes. At that much or more going back, because traffic will be starting to build by then. Figure I don't see him very often. This is not going to be a 30-minute lunch, not going to be a 60-minute lunch. I'm figuring minimum two hours. But, okay, I get in the car, I start driving, I get on the phone. I'm on the phone with this ministry in the eastern U.S. And we're talking, and I'm driving, and I'm thinking, I got an hour, no problem. But time goes, and you know, I'm on the phone. I get there, I park the car, we're still on the phone. I sit in the car for a bit, but we're still on the phone. So I finally shut off the engine and I you know, unplug my phone and I still have my headset on. So I'm holding the phone and I walk up to the restaurant. I'm looking at my watch and uh, you know, we're like, we're past time. And now I'm starting to feel a little bit anxious. I'm starting to feel that tightness in my chest because I'm running late. Anyone know that one? So I'm in front of the restaurant and I'm literally... I got the phone in one hand and I'm doing this while I'm talking to him. I am definitely not in the spirit. I am not in the zone. I'm telling you this because I'm helping you see what this looks like in normal living. To let you know that you are not the only one who struggles with this. I'm literally doing this, literally doing this, while I'm talking to this very well-known international minister about things. Doing my God talk. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's great. Praise the Lord. Yeah, isn't God good? I'm trying to find that way to shut this thing off. I'm looking at my watch. Five minutes late. It keeps going. Now ten. 
Pretty soon 15, and I'm like, steam is coming out of my ears. We finally get to the logical pause. Okay, well, talk to you later. God bless you. Bye. I blow through the doors of the restaurant, and I'm looking around. And here, sitting on this futon thing next to the window, with his head up against the glass window, is my friend from Kuwait. He's got his earbuds in. He's got his own iPhone. And he's bebopping. He's worshiping. He is in the zone. I, I am not in the zone. I look down at him. He doesn't even know I'm there. I touch him on the shoulder. He looks up and he goes, Oh, Ken, you're here. Oh, today's going to be great. I said, Why is that? He goes, Because God's going to meet us. I'm thinking, God, I came here to have lunch with you. Now, I'm telling you this because I want you to know. We all move into these zones of carnality. These zones of lack of anointing. These zones of non-engagement. And I was absolutely in one of those at that moment. Just then, the waitress walks up. Hostess, really. And she goes, Hi! You guys ready to be seated? Yep. Okay, so she takes us over to a table over here. We sit down. And she goes, "Um, Would you guys like to place your drink orders? And I'm just about to do so, and my friend goes, yeah, but before we do that, he goes, I just got to ask you a question. Is there somebody here, he goes, I mean among the wait staff, not, not the, the, the patrons. He said, is there somebody here, and, and they've got a problem in their, in their left knee, and they're having difficulty walking and moving around. And she says, well, I don't know. And he goes, well, would you go check? And she goes, okay. And off she goes. So we're sitting there making small talk. About a minute goes by, she comes back, she goes, I talked to everybody who's working today. She goes, everybody's fine except for one person. That's Jose the chef. And he has a sore left knee. So my friend says, well, are we going to go pray for him back in the kitchen or is he going to come out here? And she goes, well, we don't really like people to come out or come into the kitchen, so we'll bring him out to the table, okay? Okay, great. So she disappears again. A moment later, she appears with Jose. And we know we have our man. He's got the white smock on. says right here, embroidered, Jose. This is our man. He's got the hat, you know, the chef's hat. And it being Southern California, you know, he's got the Cholo accent, man. So he comes up to the table, and she's standing next to him, smiling. And we look at him. You got a problem with your left knee? Yeah. What'd you do? I don't know. I heard it about a month ago. Been to the doctor? No, don't got no money for that. Okay, well, we're going to pray for you right now. And then my friend, who's used to doing this all the time, He's tuned up. He's a trained sniper. He says, we're going to put our hands on you and Jesus is going to heal you in 15 seconds. He goes, really? He goes, yeah, watch this. Now because of the geometry of the table and the way we're sitting, he reaches out, puts his hand on Jose's forearm right here, his right forearm. Me, I'm just here on his knees right next to me. And at that moment, I reach out and as I do, I feel like I've picked up a burning charcoal briquette from a summer barbecue and I put my hand on his knee and he gets healed like that. Now, I don't know who it was, me, my friend, both of us, I don't know. Ultimately it was the Lord. But he gets healed and he's standing there and he's going like this. Say, hey, you know, that's pretty good, man. Say, it's pretty good, yes. Now just before this had all gone down, I'd looked at my friend and over his shoulder just beyond him, I see one of the other waiters and he can kind of see what's going on. You know, when the waiter, or excuse me, when the cook comes out to the table, 
you know something's going on. Either the meal was so good that he's about to get a tip, or it was so bad he's about to get ripped a new one. But we haven't even ordered our drinks yet. So this other waiter, he's, he's standing there, and he's looking at us, and he's leaning up against this pole like this, kind of watching what's going on. And just as I turn to pray for Jose, I see out of the corner of my eye, there's a waitress over here, and she's, I don't know, five paces back, but just a little bit back, and she's watching what's going on too. And all around us in the restaurant, people are kind of wondering, you know, what's, what's going on at that table over there? Meanwhile now, Jose's, you know, doing this number, and the guy who's leaning against the pole, the waiter, he's standing there and he's going... And the waitress that's off to my right side, she's backing away like this. And all over the restaurant, people are kind of looking at us. Because what are we doing? We're violating social conventions. We're doing the unexpected. We're bringing the kingdom into a situation in a way you would have never thought to bring it in. So Jose says, Okay, I guess I better get back to work and make your lunch. He said, I'll make it extra good for you. And off he goes. Now the waitress doesn't miss a beat. She goes, all right then, how about those drink orders? What's she doing? She's doing what the woman at the well did. Shields up. My friend from Kuwait, he goes, well, hang on. We've got something for you too. She goes, you do? And he goes, yeah. And he kind of reaches out. And he says, you've got a problem right here. You've got a pain in your neck. And it goes right down here into your shoulder blade, doesn't it? And she goes, yeah. <laughs> and I look at her and I said, you've got a problem with your boyfriend. I said, you were fighting with him last night about whether you should get married. In fact, you guys already have two kids together. And she goes, yeah! She goes, I'm really a Christian, but I met him and we just fell in love and, well, you know... <laughs> and then my friend goes, not only that, you hate this job. He says, all you've ever wanted to do is be an interior designer. She goes, yeah, that's right. I'm doing this to make money so I can go to design school. That's absolutely right. All over the restaurant, people are looking at us. People have stopped their food, you know, on the fork. Like, people mid-drink, they're turning. Because, you know, one of the unspoken rules of life is you never make the waitress cry. And this waitress is disintegrating in front of our eyes. So we lay hands on her, bang, she gets healed. And then we give her our cards and we said, you know, if you decide you want to make this a legitimate situation, you want to get married, don't worry about the money. We're both ministers. We travel a lot, but one of us will be around. We'll do your wedding for free. You just call us anytime. She goes, who are you people? I've never met anybody like you. We hadn't even ordered lunch. How long do you have to hang around Jesus before something happens? How long? Engagement is the most difficult thing for us to achieve because we've been trained to disengage. We've been trained not to take the shot. When someone comes into work and they're out of sorts, we just sort of ignore it. 
Or we say, how you going, mate? And as soon as they tell us, yeah, yeah, it's all good. It'll be fine. Pat them on the shoulder. We put a Band-Aid on a machine gun wound. Engagement costs us time. It's inconvenient. It puts us into the midst of broken lives. You know, when Jesus talked to this woman, He was definitely getting tied up in a conversation, shall we say, with a woman who had issues. But at the end of two days in Sychar, they'd had a revival and the town had been converted. Did you catch that Jesus was northbound for Galilee by way of Samaria? And I can assure you, in the ancient world, two days delay was as big of a deal as two days delay is now. And Jesus was willing to allow that to happen. Why? Well, because people were the issue. And the problem with the middle class and the upper middle class lifestyle and the mores that go with it is they create boundaries of their own. I talked about the no-fly topics like religion and politics, but also they keep us so busy that we oftentimes can't be bothered. We can't get involved in what's going on. If you think of the story of the Good Samaritan for just a moment, and I'm not going to turn to it because we really need to end, but if you think of the story of the Good Samaritan, you'll remember that there was a priest and a Levite who bypassed the man on the Jericho Road. They were busy with their God talk. And they didn't see the moment. And along comes the Samaritan and he sees the moment. And he seizes the moment because he sees the moment. See and understand was what I said this morning. And so he takes that man and he takes him into the inn. Apparently the innkeeper knew him because he was willing to accept the Samaritan's credit. They didn't have American Express cards in those days. And so he says, here, take care of this guy. If there's more money needed, I'll pay you the next time I come through. And so what we see is that the mores that help us become middle class, the social competencies that we've adopted, the way of life that we have, this is actually very worldly living. It's very worldly living because it keeps us from engaging with those who are needy and broken. Those who have jagged edges, they keep us from engaging with the women at the well and the people lying beside the Jericho Road. And when we don't engage, we don't bring the kingdom of God. And when we don't bring the kingdom of God, we wonder why there's no revival. Not only that, when our hearts are closed because of all of this, we are unable to hear the sighs and the moans and the cries. Sometimes audible, other times inaudible. Sometimes unspoken, but nevertheless quite apparent as with this woman at the well that we've just talked about. They keep us from perceiving their cries. And yet God has made it that we should be His eyes and ears and hands in the world. And thus, we stop being the mouth and the hands of God to them. And then we say, why is there no revival? So, dare to cross some boundaries. Dare to be inconvenienced. Dare to let your world be upended. When you sense that God is doing something in the moment, take the shot. Just get the shot off. Don't worry if it's exactly on target. Ready, fire, aim. Just get the shot on target somewhere. Start the conversation. 
And when you live that kind of dynamic, you will have entered into something that we call the normal Christian life. And you will have moved into something that looks very different from the Christianity that we see all around us. And in so doing, you will have become a disciple. The woman at the well. There's a lot of wells all around us. They look like coffee shops and gas stations and banks. They look like the next door neighbor. They look like the stray dog running down the street that you have a chance to capture and bring back to your neighbor and have that become a conversation. You know, your life is like a stray dog and God wants to bring you home. There would be an interesting opening line. Take the shot, people. Take the shot. God wants us to live a normal Christian life. Amen?